Well, hey, uh, Anne uh, last week uh, helped us in our series about grow up and talking about the soul. And today I'm launching out into part of the soul, talking about emotions. Next week she'll talk about mind. Three weeks I'm going to wrap things back up in our new series and talking about the body. Last weekend I was I was at a men's retreat over at Cannon Beach. There were about 150 guys, and we we heard stories. On Saturday night, three men spoke. The first one, Ken, age 82, started a business. If I mention the name of it, many of you would be familiar with it here in the greater Portland area, a very successful business. Ken's launching sentence was, I was 51 years old, woke up naked. And I thought to myself, I already know more about you than I, than I needed to know. It's a lot of years between 51 and 82, and I don't think it's going to be pretty. He said, it was strange that I was naked because I usually wear pajamas to bed. And he said, I was wet. So I got out of bed and tried to pull on my pants and they were wet. Everything was soaked with booze and urine. And I said to myself, that was my last drink. And it was. I found AA. AA introduced me to God. God introduced me to Jesus. I follow Jesus. And he told his story. Messy story, moving story, dropped the F-bomb in his story. I don't know where you're supposed to do that, but I guess an 82-year-old can get away with it. (laughs) The next speaker, Brian, age about 42, graduated of the Air Force Academy, retired colonel. For the last several years, for most of his children's life, has been struggling with various kinds of obscure cancer. He's been in remission for the last six months, and he's trying to figure out at this point in his life with three young kids how to move forward professionally out of this profound transformational experience of being a tough guy to being a cancer survivor. And the third speaker, Eric, probably about 32, told of his horrific upbringing, the recent death of his 29-year-old brother, who was also his best friend, and Eric haltingly, lurchingly tried to explain his story toward God, which is just in early stages and has more confusion and doubt than it has faith in it at this point. And as I listened to the three stories, some tears slipped out of my tear ducts and across my face, and this put me in a very awkward situation. I'm with 149 other guys, most of them business leaders in the greater Portland metro area, and I don't like to cry. I grew up like some of you. I saw my father cry once. Loving home, saw my father cry once. It was when he was standing at the open casket of my 12-year-old brother. I was five years old, and with immediate family, I watched a tear slide across my father's cheek. My mother, my older sisters, would comfort me when I cried as I was a little kid, and they would hold me, and their goal seemed to be to help me stop crying. And so that were a better state to be, not than crying. Well, I'm with 149 other guys. I don't particularly want to cry. And so I, you know, tried to be discreet about getting rid of the extra liquid on the front side of my head. And then I stole a glance or two around the room to see what was going on. And I saw some very awkward things. Gentlemen, we have not perfected the fine art of discreetly wiping tears off of our faces. It's not pretty. There's the tough guy thing, which is kind of to do a slap and a slam, or there's kind of the checking out the stubble as it might be growing, and there's the classic eyeglass, you know, adjustment kind of a thing. But 
A conflicted group, I could tell. Tough to cry. What do we do with emotions? I'm a thinker. I'm not so good about being the feeler. Now, I have a friend who wrote an email this week, and they kind of land on the other spectrum. Let me read an excerpt. I had sort of a breakdown moment, feeling overwhelmed by failing at everything, and anxious and angry tears fell. Now, I've practiced something I've done for the past few years. I took a breath and said, God, which of these emotions, because I was feeling all of them, is valid? And which are indicating something that needs to change? And which are just those over-the-top feelings that I need to let myself feel and let go on through? I guess why this was so significant for me is that I've spent my entire life thinking I only had two options. One, stuff the emotions out and just be rational. Or two, feel and validate all. But both have only led me to deeper insecurity, intense anger, selfishness, false humility, and blaming others. But I now have a better option. Don't just shut down and don't just shut them up. But feel the emotions. Just don't get lost in them. Self-control is awesome when it's from the Spirit. I can take a breath. I can ask the shepherd of our souls for wisdom to see through the fog And to hear his voice. Now, I am not an analytical person, he writes. So this does not come naturally to me. But so much freedom! Exclamation point. Friends, God thinks. God feels. And you've been made in his image. So here's the big idea today. Notice it. God is relational and emotional, and you are made in God's image. So your relationships and your emotions are an essential part of being godly. Let's start where we always start, with Scripture, and read from the Bible what God thinks about this, and base our observations and then our applications and choices off of that. I'm going to read today from Philippians chapter 4, starting with verse 9, and I'm going to read and talk our way through the passage. Let's jump in. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord. And in this way, dear friends, pause. How many of you started all of your emails that way this week? I love you. I miss you. You are my pride and my joy. Any success in my life is primarily attributed to you. Hang in there. You can do this. You and Jesus. It's awesome. You are wonderful. Right? Probably not. Might not be a bad. Just copy and paste this one. Just copy and paste this one. It's your script to answer a phone call or to leave a voice message. How many of your emails that came to you all started with, I love you. I need you. I miss you. I believe in you. Hang in there, baby. Don't you think the world would be a better place this week if all of our communication started there? Yeah, I think so. You kind of have an idea that there's going to be some emotion in this passage. And maybe not just some fun stuff, but he is framing it in, know this, I love you, 
I need you. I miss you. I believe in you. You're a joy burst in my life. I encourage you. Good way to start. Because verse 2, he's bringing the meat of a confrontation about a relationship that's gone sideways. Notice it. I plead with Iodia, and I plead with Sintichi to be of the same mind in the Lord. Wow. Would you like to have a letter written to Evergreen and the Apostle Paul outs you and your friend for not getting along? Sensitive stuff here. And there were these two leaders and something was sideways. And Paul doesn't go into the detail. He doesn't expose them more than that. But he does out them. And he appeals to someone. Well, notice. It says, verse 3. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, to help these women since they've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice. Come on. Come to this place, he says. As a whole community, as these two Leaders find their way back into relationship and the whole community finds its way back to this place. This is the state I want you to be in. Verse 4, I want you to rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near, period. What's he done? Well, this is an amazing confrontation and it's a wonderful sandwich. He starts out with one piece of bread And he's telling what's true and ultimately true and eternally true. I love you. I miss you. I believe in you. I find joy in your life. I encourage you. By the way, get your act together and help them do it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Jesus is near. Come on, let's continue our celebration. The bread, the meat, the bread. How many of us might find a confrontation in our life a little more powerful if it came in that kind of a package. Hmm. Now, the talk today is about emotional maturity. And the real guts and the observations that I'm going to make today come out of the next paragraph of verses. But they only make sense to us in the context of Paul dealing in a local church with a relationship that had gone sideways And the individuals were unable or unwilling to get it figured out. Relationally repairing. Notice what he says from verse 6 on. So, don't be anxious about anything. Hmm. About a relationship that's gone sideways? About the fact that there's actually some problems in the church and that those wonderful people that love Jesus sometimes kind of stink it up and make things far less than perfect? about anxiety that I'm suffering in my own life, about doubts that I have about God and I'm trying to put on a Christian faith as though I didn't have any doubts, but sometimes I seem to have more doubts than fewer doubts, about fears that I have right now because I'm afraid that if I keep going the direction I am, I'm gonna be unsuccessful, about my lack of security and contentment about the state of life that I'm in now. I'm married and I wish I weren't and I'm not and I wish I was and I'm retired and I really am not financially able to. And you name it. The word anxiety is an emotional and mental word and it is very large in its application. And he's just taken care of a microcosm, a relationship among two leaders in a church. And now he generalizes it to all of us and says, let me tell you how to work things out. First of all, face your anxiety and decide what to do with it. And what you decide to do with it, I will not stay here. 
I'm going to go to another place. Anxiety may be my starting point today, but it is not my destination. And then he gives us the pathway toward this destination that looks like rejoicing and celebrating. Notice as we continue, he says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers and sisters, listen. Whatever's, here's the list of nine. Whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever is lovely, whatever's admirable, whatever's anything that's excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, do more of that. Put it into practice. And here's the promise. And the peace of God, the God of peace, will be with you. Wow. The pathway from anxiety toward a destination of rejoicing is four verbs. We're familiar with them here at Evergreen. I pray, I thank, I think, and then I do. So we've looked at the word of the Lord. And some of you with a Catholic background are going to say, thanks be to God. Some of you with a Catholic background aren't going to say that. I went to Mass last Sunday. I got initiated. I'm a, I'm a fundamentalist boy from a country church. I don't know anything about Mass. I don't know to stand up and sit down and, you know, what to eat and what to say and when to talk and when to not. And I don't even know if I should have real wine for communion. I'm totally conflicted. And then the guy that's doing this thing is wearing a dress. It's very confusing. <laughs> very confusing for me. Well, we're not too liturgical here, but... We've done the scripture, and now we're about to move to our observations. Let me give you six observations and a summary. You'll find them on your notes. You'll notice them on the screen. You'll want to catch them quick. I'm not talking about them much. These observations jump out. From verse 2, we learn, relationships get conflicted and need to be resolved. Spoiler alert, Evergreen is not going to be a perfect church. Enough said. Number two comes from verse three. Damaged relationships don't necessarily fix themselves. Two highly commended, well-experienced, relatively spiritually mature leaders in a local congregation could not get their relationship fixed by themselves, which leads us to observation number three. We benefit from others helping us resolve conflicts. Observation number four comes from verse four. God's path toward healthy relationships starts in that person that you married, that you knew that if you married them, you could change them into the better person that you had hoped that you would marry. If you want to have a relationship fixed, wait for the coworker to get his act together because he's more of a dirty, rotten rascal in this mess than you are. No, if you want hope in your relationships, the solution is going to start with whom? With you. Well, I don't know who said that, but he's already done his part on that one. Okay, But you're right, we need his help. But I'm going to put you in there because 
God's word today tells us that it's probably going to be our partnership with him. But thank you. And number five, engage your spirit. Pray and thank. Engage your emotions. Guarded hearts. And engage your thoughts. Guarded minds. And then I love number six. In verse nine where Paul wraps it up, he says, by the way, Christianity sweats. You don't sweat to please God. Elizabeth led us in receiving communion today. God's pleased because we're in Christ. But Christianity sweats because we follow God. And in the following from Him, we move forward with Him and we grow forward with Him, not to be approved, but because we have been approved. And Paul says, act in productive ways. So here's my summary, number seven. Pray first, find peace, focus your thoughts, and act well. Now, if Evergreen were a conceptual church, we would be done. And we go home and we say, nice homily. But we are a church that actually thinks we should hear and do the word. And so we come to application. And a few things came to mind this week or the last few weeks as I've been preparing. That won't surprise you. Notice this as we move toward application. Emotional intelligence and effective relationships, about them we learn about, emotions and emotional intelligence and emotional health. And, and, and I'd like to share the benefit of some of those studies in just five quick points. It's not on your notes. And I'm going to read them through. I'm not going to comment. And if you'd like to, uh, to have those, uh, I'm selling a copy of the manuscript today. They're just 10 bucks a piece. Just let me know. And I'll tithe to Evergreen. In fact, I'll throw in an offering as well. No, no. I've made that offer for two services. Haven't sold any of these. No. Have had some people come up and said, I'd like one of those for free. I said, you'll get what you're paying for? No, no, here we go. Put on your seatbelts, here we go. Number one, the more emotionally intelligent you are, the happier and more robust and enjoyable your relationships will be. And some of you said, duh. Yeah, yeah, I know. Number two, emotions are contagious. We all know how that works. Have coffee with a friend. You get one of these Paul for one Bursts of joy, I love you, I miss you, I believe in you, I encourage you, how are you doing? You're my good friend. And we leave and we feel what? We feel expanded and good. And then we go to the store and there's a nasty clerk and he looks at us and he says, you're not only ugly, you stink and you're cheap. And we leave feeling very different. And when we leave the parking lot, somebody honks the horn at us and blasts and blares and we infer that over from coming anger from them toward us and we get home and we all know that emotions are Contagious. Number three, emotional intelligence begins to develop in the earliest years. A relationship with our parents, with teachers, and with peers all help shape those patterns. Number four, the emotional brain reacts faster than the thinking brain. That amygdala, that control center in the back center of the brain, emotional center along with some other elements of the brain, fires milliseconds faster than the prefrontal cortex where you actually have good and rational thoughts. We talk about being hijacked from time to time where we allow that fight or flight response to be the response that we think forward and act on instead of thinking those rational thoughts and moving forward. So some people who have offered some sage advice said, think before you act and think before you speak. And the Holy Spirit and Paul have actually outed them, uh, 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 trumped them by two. Pray, thank, think, and do. Hmm. And number five. IQ, native smarts, cognitive intelligence, is a strong predictor 
of what occupation or profession you might be hired to do. But once you've gotten the job, emotional intelligence is a far higher predictor of whether or not you will be most successful. Because the way we handle ourselves, emotions, and relationships determines how well we do once we're in the job. I confirmed those findings and others in pastors across the U.S. in my doctoral research, and I made an amazing discovery. Are you ready for this? Pastors who are higher in emotional intelligence tend to lead churches that are more effective than others. And you say, duh, we know that that works. And so the question for myself is, why when I know that? God doesn't want me stuck. He wants to move forward. I'm made in God's image. He's a feeler. I want to be emotionally healthy. I know that life is going to work better for me, God, and others if I am. Why is it that I don't necessarily give a lot of attention to that? That's challenging for me. One of the answers is I may not know what steps to take forward to move in that direction. So I'm glad that you asked. I have an idea or two. But first, let me tell you a story comes from Charles Dickens' novel, Great Expectations, where he introduces us to Miss Havisham. She was the daughter of a wealthy man, and on her wedding day at 8.40 a.m., she received a letter from her husband-to-be, informing her that he was not going to come to the wedding and they would not be married. Miss Haversham immediately went to all the clocks in the house and stopped them at that precise moment, 8.40 a.m. And for the rest of her life, she only wore the wedding gown, which became yellowed and fragile and tattered over time. She lived her life only wearing one shoe because at 8.40 in the morning, she had only put on one of her shoes. And as an old woman, she continued to live in the crippled state of being stuck in her past, refusing to live in her present or in her future. Here's the point. We can get stuck. By the way, I found that story in Peter Scarrow's book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I commend it to you. You'll find it listed along with a day-by-day devotional that's written off of it for 40 days in the uh, bottom of the backside of your uh, handout there today. You might find it helpful as well. So how do we develop emotional maturity? It's kind of fun the way God made us because I mentioned God actually designed us to grow. God's given you about 100 billion neurons in your brain. Neurons, just one kind of brain cell, but those neurons connect and make up to 700 trillion connections. No wonder you are hardwired in over a period of the first 27 years of life, and we tend to have these things called habits. Habits in how we function physically and how we think mentally and how we respond emotionally. But here's what God has done for us, because he doesn't want you stuck. Last night, as you were sleeping, or if you're a parent with a young child, while you were up all night with the child, potentially, God gave you one, God gave you 10,000 new neurons. And those neurons start out in life very lonely in your brain. And they want to hook up with other neurons. And if you are learning something, that's where those new lonely neurons find each other. And they connect. And you've heard the phrase, neurons that wire together, fire together, 
wire together. And so when you learn something tomorrow, you intentionally think about that. Those new neurons that are unattached are coming over and they begin to find each other. And if you come back the next day and have similar kinds of thoughts, those new neurons will come. And eventually over a period of time, roughly about three months or 90 days, you'll actually establish an amazing neural network there. You'll done some rewiring in your brain. We call those neural pathways habits. Habits of the soul. Habits of thought. And unconscious habits of emotions that arise. So, how do you capture the beautiful creativity that God has wired you with in a way that helps you grow forward in emotional maturity? Now, I'd like to share with you a tool that I've used for a few years. It's so helpful for me. I want to give it to you as a gift today. I'm going to talk about the model. You'll find it there on your page. It looks like a chart with five columns. And I'm going to introduce it to you. And some of you are familiar with it. It comes out of a school of therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, Others of you will see this for the first time. Some of you will say, Jared, I don't think I like your tool. So I don't care if you like my tool. But I will ask you a nasty question on the other side. So what tool do you use that's equally effective that you like better? And as long as you have one of those, I'm really, really fine. This is what's helpful for me. Take a look at it. By the way, this is an eye test. You're at the ophthalmologist right now. If you're not able to read the second line, you need to make an appointment. Now, I'll tell you what those words are two or three times. First of all, the quick overview. A is for activating. It's an activating event. B, belief. C are consequences. D, debate, dispute, and discard. And E, effects. Let me unpack those for you, and then I'm going to illustrate from an experience of my life yesterday. So, number one, as you use this, think of an upsetting event that happened over the last week. And in the C, the middle, the consequence column, write down the unpleasant feelings you experienced and your behaviors that were associated with those. So you've had the encounter, the door has slammed. How did you feel and what did you do? Then number two, go to column A, the activating event, and write down the incident that triggered those feelings and those behaviors. Now go to column B and write down beliefs. Those beliefs that almost imperceptibly, easily overlooked that self-talk that's triggered by the activating event. And you have to be a little reflective, but you'll pull it out. You'll begin to unwind their thoughts that you had that went in to those emotions and that encounter. And write down those beliefs. Now you're almost done. There's two more steps. Go over to column debate, D, debate, dispute, and discard, and write down the maladaptive, self-defeating beliefs that gave rise to your experience in column C. Submit every element of your self-talk to the rigorous examination. Examination along those eight or nine words, like whatever is pure and lovely and excellent and pleasure and good report and excellent. Those words, think about those things and write those answers. And then finally, in column E, write down the effects. What if you would have taken those debating beliefs and plugged them in over your beliefs after the activating event? What might have the effect of that been that could have been different? 
You see, the power of this ABCD approach is that it allows you to thoughtfully create a more biblical and loving response in place of what was a habitual, maybe less effective response. This is how it worked for me yesterday. I apologize in advance. I'd like to be a better person than I am, but I tell the truth, so here we go. This is not an excuse, but it's context. I had an early appointment and was driving home, and yesterday morning it rained. Did you notice that? It was one of those torrential rain deals, and I was in that, and of course I was driving the speed limit, and I really was 45 miles an hour in the speed limit, and I, I was having unhappy thoughts about a nasty person in my life. No one, a part of Evergreen, of course. No, no one here, but just kind of, so I was already working myself into a grump fump, right? And I was driving along, and you would not believe this, but someone pulled in front of me. I'm 45 miles an hour. I'm green light. I know this street. They're at red light. They pull right in front of me, big old black suburban. And I communicated with them. Now, I learned something about my car horn that I never knew before. If I lay on it long enough, it actually modulates its tone. Is that cool or what? I have not known this. Because usually my horn communication technique is more like Morse code. Long, short, short, long, long, short, short. And yesterday, I just leaned into it, baby. And I got the modulation feature of the car horn. There we go. Now, this all happened in milliseconds. Isn't that how life works for us? Of course. And because I practice this every day as a part of my devotional life, I have learned the habit. So I'm probably now, what, five, ten seconds into this experience, I'm already thinking back to this model. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, so Jared, what are the consequences of your current experience? Now, the consequences were, I thought they were stupid jerks, presumptuous on my goodwill, flat out lucky that I didn't hydroplane while I braked to run into them. I wish that they would learn how to drive, and I sure hope that they don't have young people or children in that car that they put at, in harm's way and are modeling that this is how they're supposed to drive and describe some of the other emotions that I had in that moment. Go ahead, help me out here. What was in my column C? Talk back to me, loud and bold. Pardon? Anger, frustration, disgust, rage. Oh man, you know me. What else was I feeling? Fear, annoyed, unimportant. unimportant. Now, in these milliseconds, the better side of me is starting to, to kick in as well. What are some of those emotions? Embarrassed, Embarrassed? Guilt. guilt, relief. <laughs> it's messy, isn't it? Oh, man, I got to preach tomorrow. I'm supposed to be a better person than this. At least on Saturday. You know, at least I should be fairly good on Saturday. And in my mind, I wrote down column C, and they were all there, and it was very, very mixed. I was angry. I I felt uh, put on. I felt presumed against. I felt shame. I felt guilt. I felt disgust with them. I felt all that. Now, I go back to the activating event. What was the activating event? 
Cut me off in traffic. What do you think my beliefs were? Go ahead and help me out here. What, as a matter of emotional habit, immediately informed my thinking and my emotions in the moment? What were some of my thoughts about this person? Yeah. Missed that? Stupid idiot was high on my list. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you what I did. I immediately, emotionally, and cognitive loaded up blame. That's what I did. Everything I had to do about them was blame. And then I moved it to native abilities. And I made them dumb instead of smart. And then I moved it to character-related issues. You're just essentially a bad person, right? Isn't that what we do? Those are habits of the soul. I wish I didn't have this story to tell. Habits of the soul. Now, when we go over to column D, it's very interesting to debate and to dispute and to discard. Because I've learned when I'm thinking it through what to do over there. By the way, how true were my assumptions and beliefs about the driver of the black SUV? Who knows? Who knows? Entirely speculative. Who knows whether or not my new assumptions in column D will be correct? Who knows? My assumptions. But maybe they've been filtered by the think on these things. Qualifiers. So I thought to myself while I'm driving, far less than 45 miles an hour now behind this black SUV that had no interest in going the speed limit. I thought to myself, this could be my daughter. This could be my daughter-in-law. These could be my grandkids. Could have been that they had to go to the store. They weren't planning to go to the store. It's a nuisance to go to the store. They had to get the kids up dressed well enough to go to the store. They got them loaded in. They get to the store. They have all the nuisance that happens at the store with little preschoolers. They are in this horrible rainstorm. Everything is just drenched, including mom and the kids when they get to the SUV. The kids are fighting. They're uncomfortable. They're unhappy. They finally get in. The little guy takes a big poop. (laughs) Now the kids are fighting. She's distracted. She misses the red light. I think about my dad before he died. 92 years old, still driving. Probably shouldn't have been. Was not quite the driver he was at 92 than he was at 42. So I imagine this scenario. It's an elderly driver and, and his wife is home and she needs her medication. And she says, oh, honey, don't go out into that terrible storm this morning. It's horrible out there. And he says, I, just, I have to do that. You need to have your medication, dear. So he gets in the rig and he drives to the store and he gets the prescription and he comes out and he's doing his best and he's distracted by the windshield wipers that are going like this and he pulls out in front of me. Now what happened to me? Were either of those scenarios true? Very likely not. In fact, it might have been one of you and you know that you're in the story today because you heard my, <laughs> my talking to you. Hmm? Who got changed when I do the switch-outs of beliefs and self-talk? And let the peace of God rule in your hearts and in your minds in Christ Jesus as you think on these things. Hmm. 
So I went to the effects, and this is where it's so very powerful, and you wrap it up, and I just, now I'm just speculating still, but I'm doing this thought experiment, and I'm saying, so what would have the effects been had I switched out column D for column B? I have no idea the effects on the other person, but I know this. They interpreted my horn. They picked up my emotions. They heard me say the evil, unkind things about them that I was thinking about them. They felt the curse that I was giving to them. They didn't feel blessed. I communicated well. They knew I was upset. They knew what I thought about them. That's what I passed on. That's what I sent them home with. I set them up with their own column C. Emotions are contagious. Had I been more emotional and mature in the moment, I could have just simply, I could have just simply framed life in a generous way and given them the space and been thankful for them as well as me that we avoided the accident. In fact, the really better me would have blessed them. God help those people, whatever it is. Might be a stupid driver. Help them be a not so stupid driver. Might be a young mom really struggling. Help them. Help, help her get those kids home to a home environment where the rest of the day is peace. Might have been an elderly guy taking the medication home for his wife. Help that couple in their later years as they're finding their way through the difficulty of what it's like to age with grace. Hmm. Paul said it this way. Bless and curse not. <laughs> Bless and curse not. Well, helpful tool for me. Hey, I want you to go home with a doggy bag, and here it is. It's the rest of your outline. There's uh, four different stages of emotional development there, emotional infants and emotional children and emotional adolescents and emotional adults. And I think what you'll find as you play with that this week is that you'll find that probably you haven't attained one of those levels and you're stuck there. But if you're like me, this week you will have had an experience that looked rather adult-like and looked rather adolescent-like. And where would you think my experience yesterday landed? Was it infant or child? None of you would lobby that it was more advanced than child, would you? Because being a Christian is not being perfect, but it is being on a path of following Christ. And my challenge for you this week is how will you partner with the Holy Spirit who is changing you in freedom from glory to glory daily into the likeness and image of Christ. God is a thinking God. God is an emotional God. And you've been made in His likeness and image. This week, He's planning to help you grow forward emotionally. This weekend, we pause to honor a prophet in our nation, a man who stood now decades ago and at great cost to himself and danger to his life, stood to speak in the face of systemic injustice. We've all heard Dr. Martin Luther's King that he made on the Capitol uh, um, Mall, the last part of the speech. And let me, before I pray, conclude here. He was speaking about freedom, freedom that could happen under God, in a nation, in a culture, and in a society. I think as I was reading it this week, I was thinking about, too, the freedom that can happen in Jared's life to be a larger, fuller, freer, more generous person than he was yesterday morning. And maybe for us as a congregation to find a largeness and freedom of well that comes from emotional maturity in Christ. You remember these words. Free at last. And when this happens...
And when we allow freedom to ring, and when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty we are free at last. Let's make that our prayer. God, some of us that are so cognitive, we're scared about emotions. We wish that you weren't emotional. But today we own that and we ask that you would help us grow forward. Some of us are very emotional and not very cognitive, Lord. Help, help us begin this week to learn steps forward and Anne will help us next week growing there as well. But the big deal, God, is that we want to follow you and we want to become like you. So wherever we are today on our spiritual journey, we, we take our next step forward. For some of us, we're coming to believe your claims, but we have so many doubts. We're just not sure about it. It's hard to believe in a God that I can't see or feel or hear audibly. And so our prayer is, God, I think you're there. Make yourself real. And you will. And some of us today are at the tipping point of faith. And we have a lot of questions, but we know enough. And your Holy Spirit has worked in our soul and our heart. And we're just, we know. We know we're being drawn. It's our, it's our day to say yes. And so our prayer is, God, I'm a sinner. I've gone my own way. And I, I need your forgiveness. As Elizabeth was leading us in communion, that I connected with your death on my behalf. I receive your life and your spirit. Some of us are saying, I've struggled, God, and I just, I seem to be in a rut. I seem to be stuck. Today, I ask for the baptism and the fullness and the empowering of your Holy Spirit to come into my life in fresh and full ways. Just saturate me inside and out and give me the power to move beyond my stuckness here. And some of us, God, are thinking about a specific relationship, just like the two leaders at Philippi that were sideways. And our prayer is, God, would you help us come to a place where we are of the same mind as the Lord. And God, may we as a church be a church that is growing like crazy spiritually and mentally and emotionally and relationally. And and God, that we're a church that's big enough to constantly be inviting people to come in wherever they are so they can find a safe place to grow forward to. Oh God, that's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.